So ladies, if you're watching this live and there's a man in your life, go get him. I have an ax. And have them come and sit with you and join us for the next few minutes. If they're not in the house with you, tag them in the comments, message them, whatever you need to do to get them watching. And ladies, I hope you'll stay tuned. But just so you know, today, for about 24 and a half minutes, I want to talk primarily to the men, okay? All the men. Single guys, college guys, about to get married, engaged, been married, been there, done that, guys in their 50s, 60s. And, and men, if you're watching us live this morning on Facebook or YouTube, we are giving away some awesome stuff just to guys today, including shooting range time and bullseye and Wichita books, a 90-minute axe-throwing session at Bladen Timber, uh, Wichita axe-throwing. It's just going to be awesome. And to qualify, all you I'm going to set this down so I don't hurt myself. Uh, all you need to do is sound off in the comments with I'm here or yo or present to let us know that you're here and you're watching. And then this afternoon, we're going to draw names from those that sound off, and you'll have the chance to win some awesome stuff, Okay. Now, ladies, you may be going, what the heck? I want to hurl some axes and shoot stuff. It's 2020. I've got a lot of frustration to work off. I promise. Before long, we'll have a Sunday and give you some awesome stuff too. Okay, just be patient. And ladies, where I'm ultimately headed today absolutely applies to you as well. But the truth is, statistically, you are better than we men at what we're going to talk about today. So that's why I especially need to get the men paying attention today, and you'll see why. And I think you're going to learn some, thing about men, some things about men that will help you deal with us. Now, to get the conversation started today, years ago, a mentor of mine gave me a book to read that changed his life. The book is controversial for some, but for him, it led to a huge positive transformation in his life as a man, as a husband, and a father. It helped heal the relationship between he and his children. He wished he'd had it as a younger man. Uh, the book is Wild at Heart, Discovering the Secret of a Man's Soul. And the main premise of this book, now, not having any context, it's probably going to irritate some of you ladies. You may push back. So again, I'd encourage you to actually read the whole book for yourselves before you send me your tersely worded messages and emails, okay? In fact, it will probably help you really understand men better, maybe for the first time. But the author's premise is this, that deep in his heart, every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. And right off, some of you ladies, I've offended you. You're like, I don't need no stinking man to rescue me. And you're right. I'm not implying you do. Again, read the book. But just one bit of evidence of John's premise is the biographical stories, the epic books, the types of stories and movies, pieces of history that men are typically drawn towards in love. I mean, men, think of your favorite movie or biography or book or book series, whether it's fiction or based on history. Even if it's subtle, nearly every time you'll discover these three elements. Typically, your main character is a man or even a group of men caught up in a clash of good versus evil in some form or another. The main character is being drawn into the clash, living an adventure. And there's someone, most often a woman, but not always, but there's someone or a group of people that needs the man or the group of men to come through for them. And for most of us as men, and I'll include myself for sure, uh, but not all of us, but most of us as men, especially when we're younger, we resonate with these things. We're, we're typically wired in that direction. We want to make a difference. If not for the whole world and someone's world, we want to live for something more than just wake up, shower, clock in, work, clock out, eat dinner, watch TV, go to bed, set the alarm, repeat for the rest of our lives. 
Uh, we want others uh, or a specific someone. For many of us, our wife or our kids, we, we want to be a man that they respect, that they look up to or admire, to be a hero in their eyes at least. And I personally believe that's the thumbprint of God on us. In fact, if you take a step back and look at the life and the imitation of Jesus, no matter what you believe about God or the Bible or Jesus, those three elements are there. Uh, a battle to fight, ultimate good versus ultimate evil, an adventure to live. Jesus, come follow me and I'll transform your life and I'll cause you to help others, a beauty to rescue. Jesus reaching, rescuing us. Uh, scripture refers to the church as a bride, but then inviting us to join him in helping others find life that is truly life. But here's what I've learned firsthand in my life, men. To channel those internal desires in a healthy way, to succeed in the areas of life and relationships that matter most. Uh, if you're going to make any difference in the world and avoid being your own worst enemy, you need others alongside you. Even Jesus himself got other men around him and he got into their lives and called them friends. And to succeed in the areas of life and the relationships that matter most and, and to make any real impact requires personal growth and maturity. But none of this can happen in isolation. It also doesn't happen sitting and listening to a sermon, no matter how good or relevant it might be. Growth and change and the right kinds of battles and adventures happen within the context of relationships. Because let's be honest, you can log on week after week or go to church and sit on the front row Sunday after Sunday and have no life change. You may learn some things, but not do anything. And it's within the context of a circle that there's accountability, there's encouragement, a sense of belonging, that these are my people. If I don't show up, my absence is felt, I'm going to be missed. So today, for about 22 and a half minutes, I want to talk to the men especially. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes because men, here's the thing, not for all men, but for most of us, we drift. And I put myself in this category. We have a tendency to drift towards isolation, independence, and autonomy. This is true for women as well in some cases, but especially men. We drift towards isolation, independence, and autonomy. In fact, drift may not be strong enough a strong enough word because the truth is, I think most of us want it. It's like we're on a quest for autonomy. I mean, think of those that we tend to idolize. For example, we tend to look at the 40-year-old guy who built the company, sold it. He's got so much money, he can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. Uh, we hear these stories and we think, oh, why? this is where I plan to be by 40. Why didn't I come up with that great idea? And your wife's going, yeah, why didn't you come up with that great idea? Or maybe it's the 25-year-old kid who comes up with an app and you're still trying to figure out how to load an app and he's written one and he's getting royalties and residuals and he's driving your dream car and you kind of hate him because you think, man, if I had what he has... There's someone, you look at their life, it's like, why couldn't I be that person to have that level of autonomy and independence and freedom and options and no one telling me what to do? And then this other thing in, in most guys that draws us towards isolation, autonomy for many of us, once you get into your late 30s, early 40s, especially early 50s, there's kind of this low-grade anger. And your wife or your girlfriend's like, why are you so mad all the time? You just seem to be on edge all the time. And I'll tell you what you're mad about. You're mad that you're not that guy yet. In your teens and 20s, you had dreams, a plan, but suddenly 
life just keeps looking the same and it's like time is accelerating and suddenly another year is almost over and you're, you've still not realized your dreams or your plan hasn't worked out like you hoped and there's discontent, even a low-level panic and, and I'll tell you who you're unhappy with. You're unhappy with you, but you make the people around you think it's them. And I can say this because I'm a guy, but if you're not happy with your wife, not happy with your kids, not happy with your car, you're not happy with you. And here's how I know. You picked her, you raised them, and you bought it. And you feel this discontent, and you're just kind of mad, and, and you're jealous, and you know it because you find it hard to say good things about other successful men who seem to be winning the battle, living a greater adventure, and everyone just seems to admire them. And it becomes hard for you to be in genuine community with other couples and other men without there being a little bit of jealousy. And add to that a sense of, I'm not where I want to be yet. And I'm not there yet. And, and why is life going by so fast? You throw all that together and we just become a mess. So guys, especially, I want to help you. And to do that, I'm, I'm going to try to give you the best motivation real quick. I want to tell you a Bible story. And I chose one that you already know so that it can go really fast. It's interesting. It's juicy. Odds are you have heard this story or you've heard of this story. So I'm not even going to read the whole story. Just a few verses because I want to, want to make one simple point. And then just prod you, goad you, threaten you, bribe you into taking a step that I'm going to describe is 2 to 12. It will help you become the man you want to be, help you become a better man, a better leader, a better boyfriend or a husband or a dad, a better employee or a better boss. And if you're single, I'm telling you, there's stuff you need to work on now that left to yourself you will not work on until you're married. But I promise you, it's stuff that's no fun to work on once you're married. You need to work on it now. You need some people in your life to go, dude, do you always do that? Because... Single guys, look, when you're single, if people get on your nerves, you just move. Get a new roommate, get a new job. That doesn't work once you're married. So you need some accountability, belonging, and care now. So here's a story. It's the famous story of David and Bathsheba in a nutshell. And, and then I just want to drive home one simple critical point at the end. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've not read the Bible in a long time, you should read this story. I'm just going to skim through it quickly. Uh, one evening, David, who's king, and by this point, he's not some wild 25-year-old guy running around looking for naked women on a balcony. He's been king for over 20 years, so he's about 50 years old at this point. One evening, 50-something-year-old David got up from bed. He walks around the roof of his palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the servant, he comes back. He says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, who is probably one of David's advisors. So then to underscore it, and the wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And by the way, Uriah is not some sort of, well, who's a Uriah? Uriah is one of David's friends. He's listed as one of David's 30 fiercest, most skilled, most loyal warriors that has fought for and alongside David for years. He's listed as one of David's 30 mighty men. Uriah is one of the guys that helped David the shepherd boy become David the king. They fought, bled together, risked their lives together. Yet David sent a messenger to get the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And you know how the story goes. They go get Bathsheba. Bring her back to the palace. They spend the night together. He sends her home. The text doesn't tell us, but most likely this became an ongoing thing between David and Bathsheba. 
There were likely many nights, and people know what's going on. There's no secret. Slaves don't keep secrets. They tell secrets to other slaves who tell secrets to other slaves. He, he sent, had sent a servant, go get her. So people know he's having an affair with the wife of one of his closest, most loyal friends. And you know the story. One day she sends a message, I'm pregnant. Uh-oh. And apparently there's no doubt in either one's mind that it's his child, which is why it's most likely that this wasn't just a one-time thing. So David does what every band does, control the outcome. Because us guys, that's what we do when we face or we create a problem, right? We're going to fix it. We're fixers. We decide we're going to control the outcome. So he comes up with a plan. You know the plan. He decides, I got to get Uriah home and get him to have sex with his wife. So then when she comes out, she's pregnant. Everyone will else, everyone will think it's their child. Now, Uriah's at war. He's out in the fields with everybody, uh, with Joab, King David's commander. So David sends a message to Joab, the commander. I want you to send Uriah back to me. It takes a few days. He arrives. He's like, why are you calling me back? David's like, hey, Uriah, I just want to know how, thing, how are things going, which is silly because you don't send the warrior back. You send messengers back and forth. Uriah's like, well, everything's fine. We're killing them. That's what we're supposed to do. We're at war. Yeah, well, thanks. You know, you've traveled a long way. Don't go back right away. Go home. Spend the night at home. Mm -hmm. Head on home, and then you can go back. So Uriah leaves. And David's like, man, that was a close one. I have controlled the outcome. You know the story. David gets up the next morning, finds out Uriah spent the night, but at the palace gate with the palace guards. Ironically, the people paid to protect King David. David finds out. Now he's frustrated, but he keeps his cool. He thinks, I'm smart. I'm king. I can handle this. He says, hey, I want you to spend one more night, but I want you to come and have dinner with me. So they have dinner. David gets him good and drunk. He says, hey, go home to your wife. Uriah stumbles out. David gets up the next morning, finds out Uriah again spent the night at the gate. In other words, Uriah is a way better man than David is. So then David does the unthinkable because he's got to control the outcome. He writes a note to Joab, his commander, commander, and seals it, hands it to Uriah, says, give this to Joab as soon as you get back. And here's what the note said. Joab, dear Joab, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Sends him off, problem fixed, outcome under control. But what David didn't know at this point was that everybody knew what was going on. People put things together. And this is why, especially men, especially dads and future dads, you need to read the whole story because the great tragedy is that by trying to control the outcome, David permanently undermined his credibility and moral, moral authority with his adult children permanently because they knew. I mean, Uriah, one of David's top 30 warriors, just accidentally dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns for a little while, and then David mysteriously brings her into the palace and marries her, and then she's pregnant immediately after the wedding. People knew Uriah never went home. People knew that Bathsheba had been making visits to the palace. And at this point, you've got to read the whole story to piece this all together, but David's adult children, he's got them by several different wives. They're like, seriously, Dad? You had her husband killed in an accident? so that you could bring her in to cover your affair that everybody in the palace already knew about. You've got more wives than you can keep up with and more concubines than you can remember their names, dad. And David permanently loses something he will never, ever get back. The outcome is entirely out of control. 
Then the Lord sends Nathan. Now, Nathan's a prophet. In this moment, nobody has access to David. Everybody did whatever David told them because he's the king. You're not going to argue with the king. Hey, go get that woman. You have two choices. You can live through the night or you can go get her. Nobody's going to tell him no. So God sends Nathan because nobody else has access to David. Everyone around David got a paycheck from David. Men, everybody around David needed or wanting some, wanted something from David. Nobody has access to him. So God had to send someone from the outside because he's isolated. And when you're isolated, you're inaccessible. And men, it is in most of us, not all of us, but it is in most of us to drift towards isolation. And if we're not careful, we become inaccessible. And guys, let me ask you this. When we become inaccessible, do we make better decisions or worse decisions? We make terrible decisions. So King David, who killed Goliath, makes a terrible decision because he's isolated and inaccessible. So God sends Nathan to confront him. And Nathan comes. He presents a story like a court case, like, David, I got a decision. I need your help. When he came to David, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought, uh, bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It was like a beloved pet. And in our culture, it's your Labrador, your golden retriever, your, your Labradoodle. It's, it's their pet. And the rich guy, he's got some company, David, that came by and he needed to kill one of his many cattle or sheep in order to feed his company. But he thought, I don't want to kill one of mine. I'm going to go take his. So he went next door, took the family's one little lamb, killed it, cooked it, and fed it to his guest. David, what should I do? And David burned with anger against the man. He just blows up. Are you serious? This happened right here in my kingdom? He burned with anger and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. It's like, okay, time out, David. You don't kill someone for stealing a sheep. No, he must die. He's got all this rage and anger, so of course he overreacts. Have you ever noticed your tendency to overreact when you're feeling guilty or ashamed, but you don't want to admit it? And then David says to Nathan, uh, Nathan says to David, he drops the bomb. You are that man. Uh, the one that you just said who, who should die, it's you. God sent me because no one else has access to you and because nobody had access to you. Look at what you've done. You've publicly embarrassed yourself. You've ruined your relationship with your kids. You've made a mess. God says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and all Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Why did you do this? And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And amazingly, God forgave him. But it did not erase the consequences of his dumb, isolated, independent, autonomous, nobody tells me what to do, I'm in charge decision. Now men, listen. Every one of us, me included, maybe me at the top of the list, every one of us has the potential to do that kind of stupid thing and pay the price from which we never recover. God forgave him, but David would never recover with his family 
You got to read the story. Bathsheba's baby dies. His kids are a mess. The boys go to war with each other. One son kills another son. David goes to war with one of his sons and one of the other sons dies. His favorite son dies in the war with his father. He has to evacuate the palace and one of his sons, just to mock his father, has sex on the palace roof with all of David's concubines, the very palace roof where David had stood one night, saw Bathsheba the moment that started it at all because nobody had access to him. And the reason I tell you this story is to tell you this next part. This whole story began with foreshadowing. When you read the first part of the story, you can almost see what's going to happen. But here's the part I skipped. This entire narrative begins in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. When kings, as in King David, are supposed to leave for war, spring because the crops have been brought in, the mud is dried from the winter rains, it's easier to travel, spring because there's enough food to feed the army. At the proper time, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men, sent away his king's men, and the whole Israelite army, but David remained in Jerusalem. David got into trouble because he isolated himself from the community of men to whom he was most accessible. David didn't get into trouble because he was tempted. Everybody's tempted. David got into trouble because he purposely, with a single decision, isolated himself, listen, from the only group of men that had access to him. When men face battles alongside one another, their relationships change. They're more accessible. When men battle alongside one another and adventure together, there's camaraderie, shared purpose, and accountability. And when David could have and should have made a decision that would have kept him in community with a group to whom he was most accessible and accountable, who knew him best and who he knew best, David chose, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going. War's for little people, for younger people. War's for the other guy. I'm going to stay home. I'm sending everyone else away. Guys, if you do that, if you choose to keep others at a distance, you will pay. And, And I'll tell you what you'll pay. You'll pay with your family, with your kids, with your legacy. You'll pay with your wife that you hope to finish life well with and not just stay married, but to still love each other and want to be together when you're old. That's what you'll pay with. And men, it's just not worth it. And if no one has access to your heart or the details of your life, the thoughts that are growing on in your head, eventually you're going to do something stupid. And you already know this. When you do something stupid, you don't hurt just you, do you? You hurt others, most often the people you say you love the most, the most important people in your life. For all of you listening to me, but again, especially to you men, autonomy is a myth. It's a trap. It's an unworthy goal because just when you think you've isolated yourself to where you can do whatever the heck you want, you're the boss, you're the boss of you, you're smart enough, you've kept or pushed others far enough away so that no one can touch you or hurt you and, and you're golden and I'm telling you, it's a myth. And the ability to control outcomes, it's a myth. You may make a decision in a vacuum, but that decision does not stay in a vacuum and it will have a ripple effect. And what's at stake is your future your relationships, and your legacy. You want to get this right. And I am desperately trying to help you. I'm concerned for you because I know what's on the inside of you because it's on the inside of me. I know how we drift when we're single and when we're married. And men and ladies, the thing we need the most oftentimes, maybe especially right now with how fatigued most of us are, we want the least. So here's my question. 
Are you willing to give people who don't work for you and who don't need anything from you access to you? Would you be willing to adjust just a few things in your life, maybe cut a few things loose to free up the time to step intentionally into what in some cases will be uncomfortable community for your sake and for the sake of the people you love the most and the people who love you the most? That's why I took today to talk about this. Now, from the very beginning of New Life, we were driven with a core desire for everyone to discover and connect to authentic community. And I don't want you to spend another season of your life disconnected, especially with all the extra we're facing, especially right now in 2020, where everything around us is seemingly forcing us into isolation. We may all be more at risk than ever before in our lives. So my goal, my mission today is very straightforward forward. Even if this is your first time watching us online, my mission is this, to get everyone listening to my voice in a 2 to 12 group. Now, what the heck is a 2 to 12 group? Well, for decades now, churches have worked to connect people into what they usually call small groups. And it can be so cookie cutter, and I've been just as guilty of this. Uh, A group defined as 8 to 12 people who pick a night to meet together weekly to connect and do some sort of Bible study together. And by the way, that's great. That alone has literally changed some people's lives forever. It is one of the ways to do group, but it's not the only way. And the goal isn't to get you in a group. The goal, the ultimate win for you, is to get connected to authentic community in whatever shape and form, to give people who don't work for you, don't need anything from you, access to you, and give you access to them for authentic community. And together, to begin facing the battles that life just brings and adventure and pursue growth and maturity together and making a difference in our community together. And maybe that's just two others. Maybe it's four. Uh, For my wife and I, we have two other couples that we have deeply invested our lives into one another. Just recently, I specifically uh, invited three other men into my life to get get together weekly for lunch, to give them access to me, to give us access to one another, to grow together while also pursuing a specific effort together, to serve together, to make a difference in the lives of others together. And I'm asking you, men and women, individually or as a couple or both to take the initiative to get connected and begin to give others intentional access to your life and give you access to theirs to at least two up to 12 because I love you and because I care about your present and your future. And especially during this incredibly stressful time in history in our country, when we've got to push pause on gathering everyone together on Sundays, which by the way, was never enough to begin with. Please, Take the step to get in a 2 to 12 group. And if you're already in a group, you took a break for the summer, I want you to get your group going again. If you're not in a group, it's not complicated. All you have to do is think of at least two, up to 12 people. Maybe it's singles or couples or both. It's just dudes or just ladies. Two to 12 people, you think, you know, life's complicated, full of battles, full of potential adventure. I think this or these are some people I, I might like to have by my side. You know, uh, there's someone I'd like to get to know better. I think there are some things maybe I could learn from them. I've got the desire to make a difference in my city. I think they might have that as well. This isn't a one-size-fits-it-all. It's just picking some format and taking a very determined shot at giving two to 12 others access to the level that it will help your personal growth and maturity and in making a difference for them and for you. So 
Though I definitely bent this message towards men, this is for all of us. This is something we all need. And as much as I wish I could, I as a pastor, as one individual, I cannot be there for all of you the way I wish I could or the way you need. If I try, you will be disappointed and I will burn out. So I want this for all of you. God wants this for you because he wants the best for you. And I know some of you are stretched and fatigued and you're just trying to find a sustainable pace in such an unpredictable and stressful circumstance, which only confirms if ever there was a time to not do life alone, it's now. As we enter into colder, shorter days and longer nights with holidays are, are going to be weird and awkward and stressful and who knows what's going to happen with schools and businesses. If ever there was a time to cut some things loose to create margin in your schedule for this, it's now. This 2 to 12 approach can happen over lunch, in the evening, on the weekend. It's nimble. It's flexible. You can custom fit it to your life. Just do it. Reach out to some people you know and let them know what you're thinking. If you want some help forming a 2 to 12 group, we'll do what we can to help. There's a link in the comments that you can click to give us an idea of what kind of 2 to 12 group you'd like to pursue. Just click it. Give us some basic information. We'll do what we can to help match you up with some other men or women or couples also looking to connect. Once you've got your 2 to 12, uh, we've got a wealth of online resources uh, and series that we can connect you with, but please take this step. And if you form a group on your own, we'd love to hear about it. Be sure to message us, message me, let us know so that we can celebrate and so that we can help you in any way we can. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I just, I am genuinely calling on you because we need your help. Especially right now with all that we've been facing, most of us are exhausted. We lack emotional energy. Things are so uncertain and weird. Please, God, I pray for every one of us that you would intervene in a very tangible and felt way in our hearts and our spirits, that you will draw us in, draw us towards others that you would choose for us to connect with, that you have positioned perfectly for us to be involved in their life and for them to be involved in ours. And I pray, God, for everyone listening to my voice and for me, that, God, you don't let us rest until we're connected into that kind of relationship and not living isolated and autonomous, but that we're doing life and doing work and ministry together. So, Father, I pray that you would be the one to lead the formation of these connections, whether it's uh, to two people or 12 people or somewhere in between. And, God, I pray for our church. I pray for our city and our country that, God, that you would show up in dramatic and unmistakable ways because, Father, things are a mess. But in this mess, I pray, God, that you would make us solid and that you would make us a light. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And one last time, all the men that are listening to my voice right now, if you're listening live, please drop your name or something in the comments to let us know that you're here so that you get the chance uh, to win some great prizes that we're giving away, shooting range, axe throwing, all kinds of awesome stuff. So do that. Also, all of you, please come back next week as we will talk about prayer. And I know like, ah, uh, that sounds kind of boring or whatever. Listen, Nearly every one of us, if not all of us, we pray at some point or another, but all of us at times wonder, is this making a difference? Is this working? Next week, I'm going to give you a prayer that always works. 
So don't miss it. Join us next Sunday. We hope to see you then.